Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing the interplay between the past and the present, in the form of renewed political debates about our obligations to so-called heritage buildings, including 24 Sussex, the Prime Minister's residence, and current commemorations of the 40th anniversary of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which officially falls this weekend. Thank you, David, for joining me, as always. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Hello from Prince Edward County. David, as Canadian listeners and viewers will know, There's been an ongoing controversy in Canadian politics about what to do with the Prime Minister's residence, as well as other official government homes. Let me set this up for our American viewers and listeners who might find this whole thing a bit confusing. Over the past 70 years or so, the Canadian Prime Minister has generally lived at a residence known by its address as 24 Sussex. While the home was built in the latter years of the 19th century, it doesn't really have a deep attachment to the country's political history. It was expropriated in the war years and has been the official residence since 1951. The current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, hasn't lived in the residence since he was first elected in 2015 due to the need for significant repairs, including evidence of asbestos. It's been estimated that the home needs maintenance and repairs totaling as much as $36 million, which is twice as much as it's worth. The result, of course, is no politician or government has been prepared to initiate such public spending at the risk of a major backlash. Before we get into what should be done, what do you think this saga about 24 Sussex says about Canadian politics? What does it tell us about the country's political culture? Well, let me say, one of my earliest memories of politics was the um, reaction of the adults around me to the destruction of the residence of the Ontario Lieutenant Governor at Chorley Park. And that happened in 1959. Uh, it was one of the most impressive houses in the city of Toronto. And for reasons of cost, it was it was demolished. And I, my parents went to, um, my late parents went to the salvage sale, sale and bought paving stones. And they, my, my father used the paving stones from Chorley Park in, in a courtyard. And then as part of the uh, 1960s culture of lack of attention to safety, they build a jungle gym directly above these paving stones. <laughs> New parents out there, don't build your jungle gyms above paving stones. Just not recommend it. 
I think that there has been a sense that Canadians don't want to see their politicians living too high. At the same time, Canada does have this inventory. And what a house that you did not mention that is maybe the most important of all is, is, is Rideau Hall, where the governor general lives. Um, there's also a, a home in Quebec City for the governor general. So here's, for what it's worth, my, my view. I, I think there, there, you, you always need to understand that when you don't pay your politicians properly and you don't treat them properly, they're going to get paid. It's just they're going to get paid from some other source. I, I've long thought there's, I mean, there's an argument for not paying MPs a salary at all and just saying, look, we're frankly comfortable with having only people of wealth represent us. That's how the British did it through the 19th century. And there's a case for paying them properly to do the job so that they don't have to do any outside work at all. But underpaying people is always dangerous uh, because you get people who need the money and then they go looking for the money. In the same way, if Canada said, look, we, we're just content to make the governor general completely the ceremonial face of the state. Um, and that's where, you know, when they're when people do something valorous and they need to be recognized, when there's any kind of reception, it all happens in Rideau Hall. And the prime minister is a completely private person. The prime minister can rent a condo and come to work by bicycle. We don't care. But that's not actually what Canadians want. They, they, what they want is um, the prime minister to have a public presence. They want people to go to official residences. They just don't want to pay the cost. And, th and that's, that's not reasonable. Um, if you want the thing, you have to pay the price. Now, in the case of Sussex, unlike Rideau Hall, Rideau Hall, you have to fix up regardless of the cost. It is a truly important piece of Canadian history. Sussex Drive, me, I'd knock it down and then commission important Canadian architects to make a, a, a statement building that shows the best of Canada as it is today, not as it was in the 19th century, that has public spaces that are appropriate for receiving. I've been inside Sussex Drive. I mean, as expensive as it is, it's not that great. And the leader of the opposition's house is even worse. So, you know, if, if you want the prime minister uh, to entertain people at home, to be a public face, then give the, give the prime minister the use of a house that can do that. And the only way to do that, in my opinion, at this point, for anything like a rational cost is to knock down the existing dwelling, which is not beautiful, uh, not serviceable, and replace it with something. Have confidence in the architecture of the 21st century and hire, some, hire a team of the best that Canada has to offer. Canada is a major world design leader. I could give you a list of names right now and build something that makes people proud. David, I'll come back to your idea for a, a competition a national competition to rebuild 24 Sussex. But let me pick up on the point you raised about the consequences of this kind of parochialism and provincialism. You, you described the risks that it, it, it produces political consequences domestically. What about globally? Canada is a G7 country after all. Is there a risk that such nickel and diming has broader geopolitical consequences for the country? It's not. A, it's just a, a fact. I mean, one of the things living in Washington, one of the things you know is that there are embassies that everyone wants to go to uh, because they're interesting, and there are embassies that. Uh, uh. So you know, uh, the, the the British, French, and German governments have very impressive residences and very impressive uh, that attract people. Uh, the Canadian government has an impressive embassy. But th that's an office building. Where the ambassador lives, it's a nice house, but it's been allowed to tumble into ruin to the point where ambassadors, Canadian ambassadors in Washington no longer entertain, entertain very often in their own home because the place is just too much a wreck. So it happens, it happens at the embassy office building, but that is less exciting. I mean, everyone can go to an office building. That's, that's less interesting. Canada used to have um, a really remarkable residence in London. Um, and that was, uh, it became so valuable that it was sold as a, economy measure. I, I think that was that was short-sighted. Um, I remember 
during the free trade debate of 1987-88, one of the people was on, I was on the pro-free trade side, one of the people on the other side summed it up by saying the issue here is whether Canada wants to be a small, big country or a big, small country. And the anti-free traders were very comfortable with the, the idea of Canada as a big, small country. And I think a lot of Canadians now, especially given the country's incredible success over the past three decades, say, it's time to be a small, big country, to say, Canada, look, we're watching this Russian invasion of Ukraine with horror. You know, it's, it is, it's worth being mindful that the Russian economy is the same size as the Canadian economy. Now, that's not to recommend that Canada embark on a campaign of global conquest. It's just to say, this is an important place, and it needs to think like an important place. And one way to think like an important place is to give yourself visual reminders that you're an important place. Okay, so we've talked about some of the negative consequences of the kind of provincialism reflected in our deteriorating government homes. Can we put a positive spin on it? Does it reflect something, David, of an egalitarianism that perhaps explains why Canada hasn't quite succumbed to political populism that we've seen elsewhere? I wish that were true, but I, I think that's a rationalization, not a reason. I, I think what what it does is it it's a way that the Canadian imagination has not kept up with the Canadian reality. And let me give you one other reality. Canada is an important global design leader in all kinds of art forms from, from, from video games to architecture. I don't think Canadians think of it that way. I think Canadians think of it as you know, they, they might, you know, everyone knows about Italian style and even Danish style, but the idea of Canadian style seems, seems uh, kind of absurd. And yet it's, it's, it's true. Uh, it's really powerfully, powerfully true. And, in, and as I say, in areas as, as, uh, as far apart as, as video games and, and architecture, if Canadian cities do tend to underinvest in um, their physical attractiveness, you would net, you look at Toronto and you would never think of it as being one of the most important most wealthy cities in the world because it, it, it looks like, I mean, it, it's a beautiful city in so many ways. Or in a, I say, it's not a beautiful, it's an attractive city in a lot of ways, but Canadians tend not to invest in statements. But statements make cities and cities make countries. And I, I think Canadians should accept their achievements and be proud of them and show, the, show that pride to the world. It, one of the reasons, David, that I'm intrigued by your idea of something of an, a national competition where developers and architects and so on would compete to to redesign and reconceptualize some of these historic buildings is it strikes me as an opportunity for a moment of national renewed national symbolism. Most listeners and viewers will know that there are you know something of a kind of regional grievances occurring right now in the province of Alberta, parts of Western Canada. Uh, you know, a sense that uh, we're facing something of uh, a national unity crisis. Can something as simple as redesigning and rebuilding these these government homes serve as an opportunity for uh, the, the country to come together in the form of um, national symbolism? We have a real world example of that, and that is that is the German example. So Germany is a country that is also very federal and also with a lot of regional tensions and not just between the former East and the former West, but between different parts of it. And when um, there's a huge debate about returning to Berlin as the national capital after unification of Germany, and then what to do with the buildings that were tainted. And the Germans made an historic decision to restore their former Reichstag. Um, the, the, the parliament that was built for the old German empire uh, that was then burned um, that, that as a either by accident or malign intent to justify Hitler's 
dictatorship, and then was bombed to pieces by uh, the Soviets. And, and what? Do you, so they had the shell of this thing. What did they do? So they restored the facade, and they, they rebuilt the interior, and they put in place of the old Prussian-style cupola a glass cupola with a walkway around it uh, to emphasize that this new Republican building was going to be transparent to the people, and that you could that you could stand that the people could stand above the legislatures. They didn't they weren't shoved to a visitors' gallery like in the House of Commons. In, um, they were right on top at the stars of the show, looking down on the people who worked for them. And then what the Germans also did is um, the German states build, in effect, embassies in Berlin, and these too become important statements of identity for the states. And I mean, the, the Senate was supposed, Canadian Senate was conceived as a way to represent the regions. It doesn't work that well in that way. Interprovincial conferences, because they're events, that you you lose the back, the constant back and forth, an adversarial rather than a cooperative relationship. Makes sense. So you know, if you're to have some kind of competition, you also have to start thinking about there should be an Alberta House in Ottawa. There should be a Quebec House in Ottawa. I mean, a per, that is permanently staffed. And except you know, the Senate didn't fulfill the expectations of the Canadian. Constitutional drafters doesn't work as a place for the airing of, of regional demands, but the, the interprovincial conferences those are even worse. So let, let's try some new things. But the, the power of the buildings can do it. And actually, what happened at the Reichstag could be a good example for Rideau Hall in particular, because the interior is not as beautiful as the facade. So you could you could have more leeway for what you do on the inside of Rideau Hall while preserving that truly historic facade that Canadian, that every Canadian school child either has seen or should have seen. I see, David, uh, the piece of Indigenous art behind you. Is there not also an opportunity through such a process to incorporate Indigenous history as part of uh, the overall agenda of reconciliation? That's an interesting idea. And, and, and certainly... When you come up with your design, your requirements for design teams, you could include indigenous participation as one of the things when you do your request for participation. But you know, I I don't want to micromanage exactly how that would work. What I I think the thing I've just come on here to say is um, save Rideau Hall if you can. Give up on Sussex Drive. I mean, it's just it's it's not worth it. Um, it's not it's not historically important. And build new. Have the confidence to build new. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. If I, I can shift the conversation I mentioned in the introduction that we're having a kind of real-life moment of historical commemoration uh, over the coming days with the 40th anniversary of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, in a previous episode, David, you alluded to the idea that there's something of an incompatibility between the Charter and Canada's parliamentary system. I thought I'd just ask you to elaborate on, on your point. Well, I was very skeptical of the Charter when it was proposed. I was a very young person, of course, but I, I really doubted that it would be a good fit. At this point, I mean, it's just such a fact and it's so much, it's so engraved in the hearts of Canadians. You're not, I mean, it's just 
part of the way things are. So we're, we're talking less about arguments against than prices of. And I, I would say there have, have been two. And one, I think that is very visible to everybody and one that may be less visible to everybody. The visible to everybody price is um, the architecture of a parliamentary system does not really allow for judicial review. In the American system, judicial review was, if not hardwired from the very beginning, it was certainly implicit in the system. Three equal branches, sorry, two equal branches between the legislature and the executive, somebody had to adjudicate them. And there had to be ways of adjudicating between the center and the states as well. Um, and the Supreme Court was uh, created and, and was given a balanced appointment mechanism. The president doesn't just choose Supreme Court justices. The president nominates the Senate, hears, and confirms. So there's some check and balance at the court. And although the court has become in recent years a more ideological and even partisan institution, there are safeguards against that, even if they're not working all that well. Canada didn't doesn't have the the judges, the justices are chosen by the prime minister at the prime minister's sole discretion. Prime ministers consult, but they don't have to. And it's not clear that they really do. And Parliament has has no role, and the provinces have, have, have no role in the selection of people who are going to ultimately determine uh, the balance between the center and the provinces. So this thing is grafted, in, it's just sort of shoved in, uh, wedged into a place where it, it doesn't fit with the architecture. And where, as a result, there, there's just, the, the court is outside the realm of uh, checks and balances. It is appointed by the prime minister at the prime minister's discretion. It supervises everybody else. No one has else has any say against it. It's not clear there's any way except th- uh, to correct an errant Supreme Court decision, except through an amendment, a process of amending the Canadian constitution, which is functionally impossible. And it's an amazing thing that the appointment of judges has not become more contested, more ideologized, more partisanized to date. But the moment the court does something that a significant part of the country doesn't like, that fate is waiting. But there's another, so that's that's the thing that is visible to everybody. The thing that I think that is less visible is this. The existence of the charter and of the charter process has relocated the way Canadians think about how to achieve things that they really, really care about. Um, if there's something you really care about, once upon a time, you'd have to join with like-minded citizens and work together in some kind of collaborative political electoral process to win votes to carry the day. But that's not how important things are done anymore. You can work in tiny groups, do elite politics, win elite approval, not worry about winning elections. And then through this process that is incomprehensible to most of the citizens of the country, and even very hard to understand, even for those who have some legal training, what makes a legal argument sound or unsound, um, that's a hard thing to know. You create a, a, a whole new system of political participation that is much less collaborative, much less representative. And I think that's one of the reasons why when you talk about these upsurges of populism that Candace had, one of the reasons are is that, that it's just harder for people to have an impact on the bigly on, on the questions they really care about today than it once was, because the location for those decisions has been moved to a place that's much less accessible to the political work of, of everyday people. Just a penultimate question, David. You mentioned earlier how socialized the charter has become over the past 40 years as part of our political culture. That, I would say, even includes um, most conservatives. You know, that is to say the intellectual and political energy invested in the anti-charter movement of the 1980s and 1990s seems to have fully dissipated. That doesn't strike me as an inevitable development. What do you think changed? I think just time and habituation and 
the passage of generations, things that have always been there seem like they, they have to be there. And, and I don't want to relitigate that. that quite. I don't think it's, it's useful. I think the, the, the useful question is to say, given the hazards that I've pointed out, what is the way to correct them? How, how do you, given that the, the charter is now part of the Canadian political system, how do you make it work better? So some obvious measures. One is um, that you have to remove the prime minister's, or limit the prime minister's discretion over the judicial process. I mean, there has to be some way to make sure that there's broader agreement on who the, the justices of the Supreme Court should be. And again, a lot of ideas about how that would work. And the provinces have to have a voice. The, the justices are, a lot of their time is adjudicating between the center of the provinces. I mean, it's just dangerous that the center chooses the justices who will adjudicate between the center and the provinces. You also have to have now much broader in schools legal education so that citizens can understand if they want the court, if they want to have a voice in the kinds of things that the court hears, it's not just done by these mystic hierarchs who who speak this language that uh, is inaccessible to everybody else. You have to you have to find ways to, to bring people in. So those are you have you have to make the system work better than it's done. It's amazing that it has worked as well as it has. And what I would say is not how do you resuscitate the old debate about whether it, the charter should be there in the first place. That's gone. The, you need a new debate about how do you mitigate and avert the dangers that are visible in having the charter inserted into a parliamentary system and that are going to happen sooner or later. I said that was a penultimate question, David. If I can just slip one more in there that takes up the point that you made about the increasing role of the court in policymaking – you know, I'd observe that there's an ongoing debate, even amongst conservatives, about whether to seize on these expansive interpretations of charter rights, but for conservative ends. The ongoing Canby case, for instance, aims to argue that Section 7's guarantee of life, liberty, and security to the person should extend to the provision of private health care. Do you have any thoughts about that debate? Are there risks that, that for conservatives that validating judicial activism comes to justify even more expansive readings of the charter. I think it's the opposite. The courts do follow the election returns. I don't think you're ever going to persuade a Supreme Court to take a out there stance on something that they know very large majorities of Canadians oppose. I mean, the court, I mean, that's one of the pretenses of legal, the idea that the court is, is, is looks searching the heavens for legal truth, when in fact it's, it's got its own ideas, but it's also heavily influenced by what it thinks it can get away with. And it knows it can't get away with that. Um, and so the, the result of even any success is not going to be to validate judicial activism. It's just going to be to bump into the legal limits. If, if the, the argument for private health care is persuasive, then persuade people. I think it actually large parts of that argument are persuasive and Canadians are ready to hear it. And so you're just putting energy into a place where first, I doubt it's going to be successful because the court is going to know what the limits of the possible are. And second, even if you were, even if the advocates for this were to somehow gain traction in any but the most modest way, they would summon to being a, a, um, exactly the kind of counter movement to limit the court that I was talking about a few minutes ago. So I would say politics is your friend whether you know it or not, even when you're in the minority, because the act of mobilizing for political action teaches you what first what you can do, it teaches you how to do it, and it takes away the hope that there's some shortcut away from the gaining of effective, substantial consent in your society. And trying to govern your society without consent 
that, that's, that's never a good idea. Well said, David. Just a, a final question. As the Charter celebrates its 40th anniversary, what do you think its biggest or, or perhaps most surprising legacy has been? I think its biggest legacy, but least surprising, has been it, it has contributed to the disenchantment with politicians and politics. You know, anyone who's been near it. So it's, it's, it's not always an attractive business. There are lots of people who are in politics for the wrong reasons, and you have to get them nonetheless to do the right things. So the charter process offers the hope that you can sort of take the politics out of politics. You can achieve what you want, but by dealing only with people who share your sensibilities. And so I think it's contributed to a lot of the, to the marked increase in cynicism and disinclination to participate in politics that you've seen in Canada since, since the 1980s. I think it's, it's, it's most surprising effects have been that the judges have actually been quite sensitive to the limits of the possible, even when they've taken what seemed in advance like bold moves in areas of sexuality and um, abortion rights, that the society did not react against them. The judges guessed right about what the limits of the possible were for them. But there's no guarantee that they will always guess right. Someday they may guess wrong. Well, David, just a fascinating conversation from the, the past to the present. We certainly have plenty to catch up on in a couple of weeks. So thank you for joining me uh, for this episode of From Dialogues, and I'll, I'll talk to you uh, in the near future. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.